can't believe this is the last week of the thing. I've been looking forward to this all year. You know, and it's kind of funny to chuckle with the idea of an old horror flick, but honestly, the day I got the idea for the series was not a funny day. I had a friend in ministry who blew up his life. I think he's a wonderful guy and had, a, had the hand of God on his life. And by that I meant, I believe God had led him to do what he was doing and he was, he was being effective with God's power in his life. But he, he took a couple of steps in the wrong direction and quite frankly, he had an affair with uh, a lady and next thing you know, he's blown up his life, blown up his marriage, blown up his ministry. And I was thinking about him and that's what got me thinking about David in the Bible, especially 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I read the chapter so many times, my mind just sort of scrolled through it and I got to the last verse and I thought about what it said. The, ver the Bible talks about David's cover-up and David's feeling that he successfully covered up his adultery and murder of the woman's husband. And the Bible just says the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And it caught me that day, the thing. God doesn't call it adultery anymore. He doesn't call it murder because, see, David's sin has metastasized. It has morphed into something much bigger than it started out to be. And that's when I begin to think about in all of our lives, starting with mine and yours, that all of us are hassled on a daily basis by, by Satan. And really, he's not the caricature that people dressed up in in costume for Halloween. Satan is invisible. He's a spirit. He's angelic. The real you is invisible. You just live inside your body. We think of things so much in terms of bodies, but in reality, you're a spirit. There is a part of you that's alert, that's cognitive, that loves, that feels, that dreams. That part of you is going to live forever. The house that you live in is going to go back to dust someday, but the part of you, if I was really going to know you, that part of you is invisible. It just uses your body. just uses your brain. And Satan is a spirit. And so consequently, there's going to be a daily solicitation for you and I to do the wrong thing. And that's because Satan hates God and God loves you. So that puts you and me in the crosshairs. And like I said in the first talk, you know, you're going to have that harassment, you know, to do the wrong thing continuously. But I also believe this, and the scriptures bear it out. And beyond that, my experience, especially 37 years as a pastor, has taught me that I'm convinced that Satan has got a signature strategy for each one of us in the hopes that he can blow up our lives. So in other words, if you take a wrong step, it won't be like you just succumb to temptation in a normal thing. It's like you'll take a step in Satan's handcrafted solicitation to get you to blow up your life or blow up your marriage if you're married or blow up your parent-child relationship, blow up your career. It's just something that he's unfortunately very skilled at. And in week one, we said the title of the message was Don't Let It In because we said that's the best thing you can do. When Satan comes to you with the strategy that ultimately could lead to your blowing up your life, the smartest thing you can do is just not let it in. Not, not, not even let it get started in your life. We started exploring the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that week, and we saw that David in midlife, well, he wasn't where he should have been. He was, he was a military king, and he should have been with his army, but he decided to stay home. And he's walking around on top of his palace one afternoon after a nap, and he happens to catch a sight that he shouldn't have seen. His next-door neighbor, Bathsheba, young woman, was taking a bath. He was naked. Well, you know, that could happen. You know, you can accidentally get a look at what you shouldn't see. And that could happen to any of us. But, you know, my grandmother used to tell me when I was a kid, she would say, Mark, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Because she didn't know I was going to lose so much of my hair that birds couldn't build a nest there. But what she was trying to tell me was, look, thoughts are going to flit through your mind. And you can't necessarily help 
a crazy thought from flitting through your mind, but you can keep it from nesting there, and you can keep it from staying there long enough to where it becomes toxic. And so David, you know, if he could have accidentally seen him, after all, Bathsheba was taking a bath like most people did in those days. The baths were in the middle of the house. They were in a courtyard. They weren't visible from street level. It wasn't like Bathsheba was strutting around, prim, you, know, you know, showing off her femininity. She was, she was in a safe place. The only problem was David's vantage point afforded him a view that other people didn't have. And we just want to say to David at that point, don't let it in. But unfortunately, you know the story that David couldn't get her off his mind. And the next thing you know, David sleeps with his next door neighbor. He has an affair with her. And it's really ugly because her husband is a soldier, a young commander under David's command. And so not only has he slept with a woman who's not his wife, he slept with another man's wife. And on top of that, slept with the man's wife, the man who trusts him as a leader. And beyond that, David's a spiritual leader for the company, for the country. I mean, help me out. Didn't he write most of the Psalms? I mean, we're talking about a guy that's, uh, I mean, Jesus, when he came into the world, would call himself the son of David. This is not just a, a guy, you know, chasing women. I mean, this is, this is a blow up. And so David has an affair with Bathsheba. And I'm guessing, as I've said to you, know, I've said this to you before, but I'm guessing that David feels like he's got control of this. I think that's why most of us chase after stuff that gets us in trouble. We feel like we're in control. And for David, it's just a pet that he sort of keeps in the closet for a few days. I don't know how many times he had sex with Bathsheba. I'm betting on the fact that it was more than once. Don't know. But anyway, David feels like it's covered up. I mean, it's not a problem because he's got control of it. But then he gets his first look at the monster, like we said last week, because Bathsheba texts him and says, I'm pregnant. Well, that's something David hadn't counted on. He didn't expect Bathsheba to get pregnant. Now he's got a problem on his hands because the baby's not his, and it can't be Uriah's, her husband, because Uriah's out in the field. David, as we saw last week, said, well, i got to cover this up. And we entered week two. The message was called The Thing That Wouldn't Die. Because David is about to learn what Richard Nixon learned back in the 70s. We always say it in history, it isn't the crime that gets you, it's the cover-up. i got a few historians in here. It's the cover-up that always gets you. And so David has done something wrong. Now he's deciding he's going to cover it up. He's going to, it's a little monster. He's going to try this the easy way. All he needs to do is send in your order to get Uriah to come home. He'll go to his house. He'll sleep with his wife. Everybody figure out the baby is Uriah. This is kind of like soap operas used to be on television, right? So Uriah comes home, but he's a noble soldier. He's not going to go sleep with his wife while his comrades in arms are lying in the grass in the field. He, he's waiting to get the directive from David. And when David finds out that he can't get Uriah to cover up David's sin the easy way, David decides to do a very brutal thing. Monster's growing on David. He's trying to cover it up, and he's figuring extreme situations call for extreme solutions. And the unthinkable happens. The man who wrote the 23rd Psalm now sits down to write a death notice for this innocent husband. He basically writes the message to his main commander-in-chief and says, when Uriah goes into battle, put him in the front where the men who at the lead advance are always the ones to die. Put him out there in the front and let him die. In effect, David murders his next-door neighbor's, next neighbor's husband, and Uriah's dead. And David feels like he's got it all covered up. We talked about this last week and the thing that wouldn't die. Well, it won't die. We learned, you know, from the old you know, civil rights movie, Mississippi Burning, we learned that rattlesnakes don't commit suicide. And David's sin is not going to commit suicide. It's not going to go away. He thinks he's got it covered up. 
After all, I mean, everybody, you know, in the Jerusalem Post Journal, the article was just that, um, what a wonderful king we have. We have a young war widow, and she's pregnant, and David's going to marry her and raise the kid up, you know, in the palace. What a great king we have. And that's why David thought everything was covered up. But the Bible says in our key verse, but the thing, the thing, the thing that David did displeased God. David is in serious trouble. You remember last week we said, and if you, were, if you weren't here last week, let me just give you a real, real quick synopsis. We said any of us can let the thing into our life. And here's how you can know if the thing has been let into your life. You're having to, do, you're having to engage in deception to keep the ball in the air. You're having to not tell the truth, tell half the truth, tell a flat-out lie. In order to keep things running, you're having to say something that isn't true continuously or at least let people think something that isn't true. That is how you can know the monster is loose in your life, whatever it is. If it's about money, if it's about sex, if it's about telling the truth about it, I mean, that's how you can know the thing is in your life. Now, one thing we learned last week, we said, you know, if you're in the middle of the night and you start getting chased by a stalker, Smartest decision you can make, if you're close to a police station, just drive to the police station, jump the curb, lay on the horn, because the stalker isn't going to follow you into the police station. But unfortunately, David did what so many of us do. He let the stalker chase him out to an isolated place and just gets ripped up by the monster. Why do we do that? Why do we, we do something wrong and something gets loose in our life, and instead of owning up, instead of manning up or womaning up and saying, hey, I did something wrong, we let it chase us, to a, chase us to an isolated place. And some of you are there. You can't sleep at night. It keeps you awake. And you're worried to death that somebody's going to find out about what you did. And it's just eating you up. When if you would let it chase you to God, you could deal with it. And you could end it. But unfortunately, David doesn't do that. And we learned last week, and again, if you'll just give me a few more moments to review, it, it'll be important because it'll set us up for the few minutes we're going to spend today. David thinks everything is cool. But his pastor comes by to see him, Pastor Nathan. And Nathan comes by and he says, David, I want to tell you a story. He said, there were a couple of guys out in the country and they had something go down. And he said, I want to tell you the story. You can coach me up, tell me how to handle this. So there's one of the guys across the street. He's like a conglomerate. He's like a super busy. He's got thousands of sheep. And the guy across the street from him, poor guy, he only has one lamb. And it's not to slaughter and it's not to shear. This is a pet. And he said, David, you know, they let this little lamb Drink out of their cup, eat out of their dish. They, the kids cuddle it. It's the, it's the craziest thing you ever saw, Dave. said, but the rich guy had a vista come see him, and he wanted to make a lamb chop dinner for him. And instead of killing one of his own lambs, he goes across the street and gets the poor man's only lamb, and he slaughters that lamb to make a, a dinner for his guest. David goes postal. And David said, you, are you kidding me? That man's going to die. And on top of that, he's going to pay four times for what he did. And that's when Nathan pointed to David and said, David, you're the man. You're that man. See, your next door neighbor, all he had was his wife, Uriah, just a young man, a noble man. He, and he's a fine man. He loved his wife very much. See, to you, she was just an afternoon toy. But that was his wife. And you, went, and you took his wife. And David, God sees that. And now David sees himself and he says, oh, I'm sorry I've done the wrong thing. Well, we've talked about don't let it in, and we've talked about the thing that wouldn't die. I want to take you now to Son of Thing, because this is going to be one of the strangest sermons, perhaps, that you've ever heard in your life. In fact, I think growing up, I don't think I ever heard a minister make this clear, and because of that, I dealt with some confusion about something. Have you ever had a sin in your life that you ask God to forgive you, 
and then it seems like you deal with consequences all the time. Have you ever had that cause you to wonder, did God really forgive me? Because I, I ask God to forgive me, but I'm like still dealing with all the ramifications of it. See, the odd thing is here, after Nathan comes to see David, David is square with God. Because David asked God for forgiveness. If you want to find that prayer, you can read it in Psalm 51. David pours out his heart to God, and God forgives David. But see, that's just the thing. David is through with his detour into sin. He is just beginning his journey into consequences. Because even though God forgives us of our sin, it doesn't take away that pesky little principle of life that we harvest what we plant. I remember when I was a kid, I used to hear ministers tell a story, and it's not a good illustration, but it does just seem to fit right here. There was a story about a couple that had a son, a teenage son that was just always going off the rails. He was disrespectful, spiteful, would spit at his parents. He was always getting in trouble with the police. He's getting arrested. His parents had to bail him out. And then when he bailed, the parents bailed this kid out, this kid would blame his parents. I mean, he just was always as disrespectful and as crazy as he could be. And the fathers, you can imagine, had a lot of pent-up emotion over this. But he knew better than to vent on his son. And so in order to handle his emotions, he would take a large nail every time his kid did one of these crazy things. And he would nail that nail into a tree in the front yard until there were scores of nails in this tree trunk. One day, thankfully, the, the kid found a church like New Spring. And he came to Christ and he asked God to forgive him. And he went to his mom and dad and said, hey, I'm so sorry for all the horrible things I've done to you. I'm a different person. And his dad said, hey, son, come with me. And he took a claw out to the front yard. And one by one, he pulled out the nails. And he said, look, son, the nails are all gone. The boy said, yeah, dad, but the holes are still there. And that's it, see. How many of us who grew up in church say, oh, whatever I do, God will forgive me. That's true. That's unquestionably true. When it comes to our cosmic penalty of dealing with God for eternity, that is true. God will forgive you of any sin, but it does not mean that if I do the wrong thing that there won't be consequences because we harvest what we plant. So David now is square with God, but he's just now beginning to experience the consequences. Well, we said that the thing is like a monster that's loose in David's life. And Nathan had told David this. If you look at the end of Nathan's story, Nathan had told David, the sword will never depart from your house, and out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. I've had this experience probably hundreds of times, and I'm guessing you have too. Have you ever had a friend who was about to do something crazy, and you knew it was crazy, and you just couldn't believe why your friend was doing something so foolish. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had a man sit in my office and tell me, just matter-of-factly, that he's going to leave a good wife who loves him very much and chase after some woman that he's met at work. And I'm saying to him, you can't do that. Think about what it's going to do to your wife. Think about what it's going to do to your kids. I've talked to a woman who said, you know, I started communicating with this guy on Facebook that I went to high school with, and we just discovered we have so much in common, and he makes me laugh, and he understands me, and, and my husband doesn't, and so I think I'm, I'm just going to rediscover what I could have had when I was in high school in the first place, and I'm saying, but you got kids and a husband. Have you ever had your friends say to you what so many people have said to me? I've heard so many people say, this isn't going to hurt anybody but me, and they would say, well, what about your kids? Well, I've talked to some you know, I've talked to some, psych, you know, some mental health expert, and they tell me that it's not going to adversely affect my kids. 
Now, I don't want to quote Shakespeare two weeks in a row, but you remember the old Shakespeare quote, we think the lady doth protest too much? I think the reason why people say it ain't going to hurt anybody but me, we know it does. And sometimes they don't say, well, it's not going to hurt anybody but me, but it's like, well, it's my life. It's my life. It's my life. I can do with it whatever I want to. Here's the thing about every one of you in the room today. You have a circle of people. You have a network. You have people who follow you on Twitter. You have Facebook friends, real friends. You've got so many people in your life. You've got people that are, here's the thing. Every one of you has somebody who looks at you as a moral compass. You said, Mark, me? Yeah. You've got people who look at you as a moral compass. They, don't, they may not know God. They may not even know anything about the Bible. They may not even know anything about any kind of standard of right and wrong, but you act as a moral compass. They watch your life. And something that you're for, they feel like it must be right. Something you're against, they feel like it must be wrong. Now, here's the thing. There's a verse in the Bible that talks about how, uh, this idea that what I do doesn't affect anybody else. In Romans, the Bible says nobody lives to himself and nobody dies to himself. And that's true. There isn't a person here who can say, what I do doesn't hurt anybody else. And there's not a person here who can factually say, it's my life. I can do anything I want to. Now, what Nathan has told David is, David, it's true. You have a monster that's loose in your life. The thing is loose. You set it loose. But what David is going to discover is not only is his monster loose, his monster has given birth to other monsters and these monsters are going to come looking for his family. For the next few moments, even though David is forgiven, I'm going to ask you to ride with me David's roller coaster of horrors. And because that, I call it roller coaster because we're going to have to go fast through a lot of situations in David's life. And I'm going to introduce a lot of people to you whose names you may be hearing for the first time. But it's really important that we can see the evolution of how all this happens. I'd like to introduce you to David's daughter, Tamar. Tamar, fortunately, has been un, she's been really pretty much... Uh, um, not affected by what David did. Tamar's the kind of daughter all of us would want to have. She's the granddaughter all of us would want to have. Tamar is beautiful on the outside, and Tamar is beautiful on the inside. She is just Miss Wonderful. Uh, she is, as my grandma used to say, she, she has pretty ways. Tamar is beautiful outside, beautiful inside. I want to introduce you now to the crown prince. His name is Amnon. He is the heir apparent. He is David's oldest son. Now, here's the thing, and this is something that every parent, every grandparent really needs to grasp for everybody who ever will be a parent in here. And, and now, for all of you who are parents, I want you to just hold something solid because I have some news that will shake you. You ready for this? Your kids are not listening to your lectures. Okay, I know that, I know that this is, that's quite a shock to come today. Your kids are not listening to your lectures. Well, I told them, and I told them, and I told them. Your kids are not listening to your lectures. Give them anyway. It's good to do, but your kids are not listening to your lectures. They are learning from your life. Every day, moms and dads, those of you who will be moms and dads, you are teaching them. Now, here's the thing. David could give a lecture with the best of them. He knew a lot about God. He was a brilliant man. On top of that, he was a songwriter. I mean, he wrote so many of the psalms. And don't you know that when David's kids were teenagers and they came back from the temple worship, there were people who said to them, oh, you know, fans, oh, it must be so wonderful to grow up in the house of David. I just love that song your dad wrote about the Lord is my shepherd. It must be wonderful to grow up in this house. <laughs> but David's, David's kids were not reading his sermons. They weren't listening to his songs. They weren't looking at the lyrics of his songs. David's kids were watching his life. And David taught his boys two lessons above all. And here they are. 
They watched what happened with Bathsheba and Uriah. They learned these two lessons. Number one, if you see something you want, you just take it. And the second lesson they learned is if anybody is in your way, you push them out. See, David wanted his naked next-door neighbor. He wanted her. He just took her. Her husband was in the way. He whacked him. This guy by the way. David has now taught his sons that's how you live your life. Amnon has something he wants. As crazy as it sounds, he wants his half-sister Tamar. And so he works out a plan. You can read about this if you want to because I'm going to give you the thumbnail sketch. But it's in, this is all in 2 Samuel chapters 12 through the end of the book. He works out a plan to get his half-sister in his bedroom. And she has, she's unsuspecting, of course. And he reaches out to grab her, and she pleads with him when she figures out what he wants. And she says to him, please don't do this. This will ruin my life, and, and people will call you a fool all throughout Israel, but he doesn't listen. And David's son rapes David's daughter. See, the monster is loose. David said, I can control this. But now the monster is loose in his family, and his monster has given birth to monsters that are coming after Tamar. And now Amnon is crown prince. We won't talk about why this matters, but it will matter in a few moments. David goes ballistic, but listen, dads, he doesn't do anything. You know, you have a son who sexually assaults his sister. Something ought to be done about that. But David doesn't do anything. Now I want to introduce you to David's second son. His name is Absalom. By the way, he is daddy's favorite. Absalom is good-looking, he is charismatic, he's not particularly smart, but he's just really handsome, and he's just the kind of guy that gets people to like him. What you should know is Tamar is Absalom's full sister. They share both dad, David, and their mother. And now Absalom has just understood that his sister has been raped by his brother, and he is waiting for dad to do something about it, but David doesn't do anything about it for two years, and it's just grinding on Absalom. But what can he do? Well, he figures out what to do, because, you know, he learned from dad that if somebody's in the way, you get them out of the way, and Amnon's in the way. So Absalom decides to throw a barbecue, and it's a few miles out of town, far enough out of town to do what he needs to do. And he invites his dad to come, knowing that there's no way his dad's going to come. And, and David said, Absalom, I'm proud of you throwing this barbecue for all of the family, but I can't be there. I got things to do. And so he, he says, um, uh, well, I can't be there. And so Absalom says, well, how about you let Amnon come in your place? Well, Amnon goes there, and Absalom gives instructions that when his men see Amnon get liquored up to kill him. And so now you've got David's son, Absalom, murdering his brother. See, the monster is loose. There's a monster after Tamar. There's a monster after Amnon. There's a monster after Absalom. David's monsters have given birth to other monsters. Well, now David needs to speak up because was this justifiable homicide or was it murder? But again, David's not speaking up. And so Absalom basically just hightails it to be with his maternal grandfather. David could extradite him and bring him back, but he's not. And he just sits on it. And years go by. And finally, David's general says, I know you want your boy to come home. Why don't you just let Absalom come home? And David said, sure, he can come home. But David, the master of the I'm not. Do we have any dads here that like, you know, just if I don't see it, it didn't happen, go talk to your mother? And David said, okay, he can come home, but I'm not going to see him, and he can't see me. See, he's got Absalom and Never Never, Never, Never Land. Was what he did right? Was what he did wrong? 
Well, David still won't see him and lets years go by, even though he really wants to see his son. It's just he, he leaves everything in limbo. Well, during this time, Absalom sees something he wants. He wants the kingdom. After all, his dad's in late middle age, and, you know, he, why should his dad be king? So Absalom's deciding he, he's going to figure out a way to become king, and he's got it. I don't know. Do we still use the term metrosexual anymore? I know we did for a while. Absalom had been quintessential metrosexual because he had long hair, and he was so proud of it. He was so proud of it, he weighed it. That's crazy. He had weighed five pounds. But Absalom... He, he, you know, remember the days when you used to go to the grocery store and you see the romance novels there and you see this guy with the long hair, you know, very pretty guys, you know, and, and, and when they talk, they talk with a foreign accent. I always think that's kind of what Absalom was like. He was kind of an empty suit, but he was very attractive. And so what would happen is people would come to the palace because they had some issue to be resolved and Absalom would meet them there and they would see Absalom and they would, you know, try to bow down and Absalom would catch them before they bowed down. So you don't need to bow down to me. We're friends. Tell me what your problem. And it didn't matter what their problem was. If they came to see Absalom, they were always right. Any of you guys work with a kiss up at work? I mean, you know, it's just always like whatever. You know, they always tell people what they want to hear in the hopes that they'll somehow get, get in with the right people. A kiss up. And, you know, it's like, well, no matter what, who's got a problem, well, well, yeah, you're, you're right. That she shouldn't have said that to you. And no, the boss shouldn't have done that. And if you ever talk to one of these people, it's like, well, I just, I just go for the underdog. No, you're just a loser looking for losers. <laughs> that was somebody in management. <laughs> hey, that's what Absalom did. He was just kissing up all the time. Well, and then what happened was, you know, if you're, any, any of you hopefully not have termites in your house, because if you have termites, they can actually eat out the substructure of the house before anybody knows that anything's wrong. And that's what happened to David. He didn't even realize he had a monster loose. And, and Absalom basically stole away the kingdom. Now, work with me for a moment, because I've got to, like, condense a long story into just a few minutes. David, when he finds out Absalom has basically stolen the hearts of the people, David takes his army and his family, and he evacuates Jerusalem. But you need to understand, David doesn't evacuate because he's afraid of losing. He's a military man. I mean, this is a guy that when he was a teenager went down into a valley and went mano a mano with a man nine feet tall, and all David had was a bag of rocks and a slingshot. He is not afraid. He is a military superstar. He doesn't want to get into a war with his son. I mean, he's embarrassed. I mean, after all, wouldn't it embarrass you if you were king or queen and your own child raised up an insurrection against you? It was embarrassing. But beyond that, David knows that if he gets into a war with Absalom, Absalom could get killed. I mean, think about this. The kid that wants to kill his dad, the dad is worried about if I get into a war, I'm going to wind up having Absalom killed. And so he just decides to evacuate. Because after all, Absalom is stupid. He's no strategist. He'll blow up. So when David evacuates Jerusalem, he's just buying time. He's just waiting for his son Absalom to do enough stupid things that he will blow this thing up, and then David can kind of come back home and collect all the pieces. But it was a sad day because when David and all his people left, they were crying as they left Jerusalem. But I'll tell you what sobered David up. He got one piece of, he got one piece of information that changed everything. It might not mean a lot to you at first, he, got, he, he heard Ahithophel, I want to introduce you to him, Ahithophel is among the conspirators. All of a sudden, everybody froze in their tracks. 
Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's top strategist. He was the most brilliant man in the kingdom. Well, let's read what the Bible says about Ahithophel. The Bible says about him, Now in those days the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. See, in a, in a cabinet meeting, David would listen to all of his advisors, and then at the end he would turn to Ahithophel and say, Ahithophel, what do you say? This guy was so brilliant that he was like almost having God in the room. Now that raises an interesting question, New Spring. Why would the smartest man in the kingdom link up with stupid Absalom? Well, we'll set that aside for the moment, but there's no doubt about it now. Absalom becomes dangerous. Absalom on his own is stupid. But Absalom, powered by Ahithophel's wise counsel, is now suddenly a very dangerous man. And Ahithophel's advice to Absalom, unfortunately, was very sound advice. And by the way, we learned something about at this moment how much Ahithophel hated his ex-boss. Because Ahithophel says to Absalom, look, all you need to do is kill your dad. Don't, don't fight his army. You want them to work for you anyway. Just go kill your dad. How about that? After all these years of being David's loyal right-hand advisor, Ahithophel says, just kill your dad. And now we're back to the question, why would a man so smart Link up with somebody so stupid. Well, before I answer that, let me just tell you this so that you'll know. Absalom was stupid enough not to listen to Ahithophel. And when Ahithophel realized his advice hadn't been followed, he went home, put his affairs in order, put a rope around his neck, stood up on a chair, kicked the chair out, and hung himself. Why'd he do that? Did you ever try to read through the Bible and you get into one of those chapters that so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so and this guy was this guy's dad and dad so-and-so and you read that and you think, well, I'm not going to get a blessing today. <laughs> hey, I know, but those chapters are there for a reason. Let me read a couple of begots and you do some detective work and see if you can figure out why Ahithophel did what he did. In 2 Samuel 23, 34, it says, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Ahithophel has a son named Eliam. And say, Mark, that doesn't do much for me. Okay, let me read another one. 2 Samuel 11, 3, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? Oh, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. The woman David slept with. Her husband he had whacked. This was Ahithophel's grandkids. Well... It's just a matter of time now because Absalom is going to do stupid things and sure enough he's going to blow up and the armies will meet and David's armies will win. So it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. One last time David calls his generals together, the three and top general and two generals under him and he said, guys, we're going to fight today but he said, I've got to ask for a personal favor. I'll read it to you. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. David said to his commander, sooner or later, somebody's going to come on Absalom, and I know you've got to beat the other army, but please don't hurt Absalom. He's daddy's favorite. Well, sure enough, the battle goes David's way real early, and David is at the top of the gate, and he's waiting. This is before the days of cell phones and electronic signals. They, they ran, they're dependent upon runners to bring news, and David saw the body language of the first runner, and he said, it's good news. And the runner came, and he said, sir, you're winning, you're winning, you're winning. And David said, I only have one question for you. Is the young man Absalom safe? Well, sir, I really don't know about that. 
And then another runner came up, and David, and he said, we won. And David said, is the young, you see, he wasn't questioning whether or not they were going to win. He just wanted to know, is the young man Absalom safe? And the runner, not knowing how David's emotions were running, said to him, well, sir, I wish all your enemies could be as dead as that young man is. And that's how David got the word that Absalom was dead. And he was dead. I've always thought it was a little humorous, I guess, when I was growing up to hear the story. Absalom, had, as I told you, had hair that was so much that he weighed it, you know, but when he was going into battle, he put it up on top of his head. Something strange about a man puts his hair up on top of his head, you know. And he's riding his mule, and he went under a low-hanging branch like we have here in Kansas hedgerows. He got his hair caught in a low-hanging branch, and the mule ran out from under him, and he was just hanging there by his hair. And so one of Joab's men, Joab's general, David's general, one of Joab's men came to him and said, I saw Absalom, he's hanging by his hair over there. And Joab said, didn't you kill him? He said, no, I heard what David said this morning, to deal gently with the young man. And Joab said, I'm tired of dealing with this mess. And he went over and found Absalom hanging by his hair, and Joab took out three daggers and drove all three through his heart. And he had his men basically hack Absalom to death. Absalom had always wanted to have a monument to himself. They threw his dead body on the ground. They heaped up stones on top of him, and for years it was called the Monument of Absalom. And we know what happened and how David dealt with that because we hear something that breaks our hearts. The king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears. And as he went, he cried, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, listen, why did David say, If only I had died instead of you? Real simple. David knew that the monster that got Absalom had been given birth to by the monster that got David. Now I've got to give you an ending in four minutes. What is the lesson that we take away today from Son of Thing? Well, the first one is so obvious that I won't spend any time on it. The first one is we need to, you know, at that moment when we're standing on the ledge about to do the wrong thing, we need to think a few steps ahead. Everybody talks today about living in the minute. Hey, we need to start thinking four or five moves ahead. If I do this, this is going to happen. And after that happens, what's that going to lead to? Hey, before you take that wrong step that blows up your life, think about the people you love. If you're a parent, go visit your kid's room. And remember this story. Oh, gosh, I wish I had a whole hour to bring this talk. And if you'll go home and read 2 Samuel, you'll understand everything I'm trying to get across to you here. But, you know, listen, guys, listen, parents. All of us are going to let the thing into our life, and things are going to come after the people we love. Here's what you need to know. David's situation did not need to be nearly as bad as it was. When the thing comes into your life and begins to come after you, people you, people you love, for the Lord's sake, do some damage control. See, David never does damage control. I mean, think about this. When Amnon raped Tamar, David should have stepped in and said, that's wrong, and there should have been a price to pay for Amnon. I don't know what that price is, but it should have happened. If that had happened, who knows? Maybe Absalom would never have gone off the rails. But David is the kind of person, you know, David just wants to say, I don't want to confront anything. If I don't see it, it didn't happen. If I close my eyes, it goes away. Go talk to your mother. Nobody can get a straight answer from David. You want me to explain Ahithophel for you? That's a two-inch putt. See, after David did that awful thing and slept with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, he was king. 
And you know what David tried to do? He didn't want to confront anything. He just tried to let business go on as usual. So every morning, Ahithophel had to drive to work, sit down next to David, hear David's concern, give David his wonderful advice. And day after day, Ahithophel was forced to pretend that nothing had happened before the man who had blown up his family. And it ground on, I mean, it, it ground on him and ground on him until one day Ahithophel saw his opportunity and he lined up against David. Now listen. This is what I'd like to talk about today. People here, including me, we've done some things that have hurt people. And we would like to go on like nothing happened. Let me ask you a question. Work with me for a moment. Suppose one morning David had asked Ahithophel, can we have a meeting? Can we just, just the two of us in a room? Imagine for a moment David sits down with Ahithophel after violating his granddaughter. And David takes his crown off his head and sets it down and says, Ahithophel, for a few moments, I'm not King David. I am just your friend who's done an awful thing to your family. And now, Ahithophel, I know you've got things that you want to say to me, and I'm going to sit here, and I want to hear what you have to say. You tell me. And if I don't want to hear it, say it anyway. And I won't be defensive, and I won't come back and try to explain to you why I did what I did. It's just that I need to man up and listen to what you have to say to me. If he had done that, I don't think Ahithophel would have gone off the rails. It wouldn't have cost David the revolution. I don't think it would have cost Ahithophel his life. Some of us need to sit down with some people that we've harmed and say, I know I did something that's wrong, and I can't undo it, but I do want to show up. And if you've got something to say to me, say it. I want to hear what you've got to say. Oh, the forgiveness that could happen in a meeting like that. Oh, the lawsuits that could be stemmed. I can tell you, it would stop so much damage if some of us who have harmed people would just show up and say, I know what I did and I'm sorry. And if you've got something to say to me, I want to hear it. I want to learn from it. I want to change. I at least want to woman up and man up and show up. Damage control. Damage control. Some of us need to have that meeting with our kids. Some of us need to go home and have that meeting with our wife or a husband. You say, well, that's uncomfortable. Man, getting shredded by a monster is a lot more uncomfortable. Final thing I have for you today, and I'm out of time, it's 1230. Final thing I have for you is that no matter how we screw things up, God can still redeem our messes. Aren't you grateful for that? Because David, I'll tell you, you talk about a guy who screwed things up 12 different ways, David did. But you know, it's interesting to me that the Bible never talks again about David's sin. Everything after this is always good about David. And there is something that I want you to see, and then we'll all go home. You know David married Bathsheba. That was the woman he slept with next door, and the baby that they had, you know, that was conceived, died. But the Bible says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Yeah, that's the Solomon who became king. That's the Solomon who's in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad to know that even the worst mistakes that we make and the awful decisions that we make that allow the monsters in our lives and even the monsters that can hurt people we love, if we still show up to God and say, God, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, that we have a God who can even take our worst mistakes and redeem them for a future that's eternal. Aren't you glad for that? Thank you for being here for The Thing. We'll see you next weekend.